What's up, Wildside besties and baddies? I'm Bailey. And I'm Chelsea. And we're here to walk you through the wild sides. From homicides to hostides and everything in between. We're so glad you're here, so buckle up and enjoy the ride. Whoa, guess who's back? Dude, I don't I don't know who's back right now. Am I back? Are you back? You're back. I don't know if I don't know if I'm back. Your voice is half back. Dude, I want you to ask me. I want you to ask me, Chelsea, how were your holidays? How how was your new year? Hey, how was your holidays? I'm so glad you asked. It was a bucket of crap. It was so bad. <laughs> I've never been more sick. I was sick forever. Hey, but you know what? It completely cleared my social schedule. I got to do nothing. I got to do nothing. Listen. And that was glorious. But I still would not wish this. I, I don't know. I don't know. I don't think I'd wish it on anybody. I don't think. I don't think. <laughs> it was It was bad. It was really, it was bad. It was bad. How was yours? I mean, it was fine. But recently, so you guys, we I told y'all in the intro, the New Year episode that Chelsea and I have been reaching out to different professionals in different fields, trying to line up these interviews. And I reached out to this guy who is like the expert in factitious disorders, right? Munchausen, Munchausen by proxy, malingering, all of that stuff. He is regarded as like the guy. And so I reached out to him and he responded. And what he responded was with a correction to my spelling in my email to him because what? I my email autocorrected factitious disorder to fictitious disorder to literally the world's renowned factitious disorder expert. And and I don't want to make it sound like he was very, very nice. We're hopefully gonna try to get him on the show. Um and and he he did not mean it in like a nasty way. I didn't perceive it that way. But just the fact that like the dude over factitious disorders was like, um just you know, brr, 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 just so you know, it's technically factitious and not fictitious. And I wanted to crawl into a hole and die. That is so funny. Well, because I you copied me on that email. And of course I was like Thank you so much for speaking in lay term and like letting us know <laughs> that it's in fact not fictitious. It's factitious. Like how kind of you, sir, to know that not everybody is as smart as you are. And and now it's like, oh, that that makes oh, oh, that makes so much more sense. Dude, yeah. it, it stuck so bad. I um I don't know. You know, being embarrassed is I guess part of a per, like any field. Um, we should ask Brene Brown. She dude. would tell us all about shame and embarrassment. <laughs> we should. Hey, Brene, if you're listening, let us know about shame and embarrassment. Yeah, Noah. So obviously, we've talked about I was a dental hygienist for a lot of years, and 
So I was real weird on certain rules, right? Like I, um, I always made my patients wear some sort of safety glasses, even if they were just like cheap sunglasses. I wanted something over their eyes because in my mind, I was like, I can just see, I can just see like a very, like a micro tip of my extra sharp instrument breaking Ooh. off. Yeah. Flying out of the air and nose diving into their cornea. Like I, I could just, I just knew it was going to happen to me. I, I just mm. had this, I don't know. Was it irrational fear? I think this was more rational. Like I, I really think it could happen. Or so, like a chip of your own tooth. Right? I, a chip of your own tooth, like anything, man. Like, I don't know. I read an article about it one time years ago. I won't go into that, but a dentist straight up dropped a syringe like a needle into a woman's eye like it slipped uh, uh, and then she no. lost her eye because no. of the bacteria that was on the needle from her no. own mouth no. like it was the I, I was just like that'll be me i will be on the cover that will be my first 15 minutes of fame it's like this girl <laughs> dropped this thing in someone's eye so anywho so I like run down to the Dollar Tree because I was like, oh my gosh, we're out of glasses because it gets scratched, right? I have to clean them, they get scratched. So I go down and I, I get this pair of sunglasses, but they had to look kind of bougie, right? Like from the Dollar Tree, like I wanted them to look kind of nice. Mm -hmm. And so I remember I just got this really like indigo, bluish purple, like awesome pair of Dollar Tree sunglasses. And I come back and I, you know, I have my patient and I, I get her seated and I go through the appointment and we're finished and I sit her up and she takes these glasses off and I'm not lying. She was left with a blue outline of those <laughs> dollar tree. Like the ink had transferred onto her face. <laughs> kind of like those old like gag like binocular. Yes. Yeah. Like the, you see like from the sixties where you put the binoculars up and it leaves like the black rings. Like it straight up did that. And I just remember doing one of those like, okay, crap. All right. Um, I know this is going to sound strange, but I, I need to get some alcohol wipes and I'm going to bring you a hand mirror and I'll be right back. Luckily, you know, because I was like, I can't just start wiping her face off. Right. That would she be has super to know. Weird. Like she has to know. So luckily she got a good giggle out of it. But I just remember thinking, like, what if it had been one of those ladies who were like, you're you're done. You're done in this industry. Like, your you know? job will be mine. Yeah. 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 And she was super nice. But I was I was so I was so embarrassed, you know, because you're just like, what do you how do you explain that to a person? I don't know. Oh, but anyway, that's that's man. probably one of my top ones. That's not that's not too bad. Really? It's not. Terrible. It had a good ending. Yeah, it's not terrible. So as a therapist, right, and I don't want to take all the time, but I think this will give you guys a, a boost to your self-esteem for the rest of the day when you listen to this. I think my most embarrassing, excuse me, story as a therapist, I was brand new, brand new therapist. Um... And I was working, I was working in a court program. So it was a DUI court program. The clients were mandated to be there and it's a year long. So it's like you either 
go to jail or you can go to this treatment center. And so I was the therapist for these groups. And I think 98% of the clients in that program were male. And they were probably between 25 and 45, kind of on average age, right? Mm -hmm. And I was conducting, I was facilitating a group. And in order to have like good groups, you have to be really like flexible and kind of charismatic. You know what I mean? So you have to be kind of flexible, kind of charismatic. And you you kind of, you can joke around at appropriate times just to keep the morale up because the worst thing that you can do is like have everybody turn against you and everything's awful and they hate you and it just spirals. And so I don't remember the context of the conversation but one of my clients, we'd go around, they'd check in, you know, how are you feeling? What's been going on with you? Where are your cravings? Stuff like that. And we had this gentleman checking in and he was a landscaper. And I was just kind of in one of my like happy-go-lucky, fun, flexible moods. And I was like, oh my God, you know, like, what do you do as a landscaper? Like, what do you, what is like your niche or your specialty? And he was talking about it. And he, and I was like, can you cut out figures? Like, can you make cutouts in like hedges and bushes like Edward Scissorhand did? Right. And he was just like, I mean, yeah, probably. And then I don't know. It just, this tumbled out of my mouth. And I was like, Haha. well, if it wasn't unethical, I would have you come to my house and trim my bushes in the shape of a flying <laughs> Shape of a flying pig. Oh, and I, I, when I said I wanted to die earlier, I... I wanted to die. I was mortified. And the group, there's this like pin drop silence. And then, and there's probably 15 men in this group and they start howling. I mean, literally there's one guy rolling on the floor. Three of them are crying because they're laughing so hard. And they're like, yeah, you know, Joe, you could go trim Miss Bailey's bush. And you can't, like, you can't let them see defeat in your eyes, okay? No. And so I just sat there, and I just nodded, and I was like, yep, okay, uh uh-huh, get it out of your system. I'll give you guys three solid minutes. Get it, get all the jokes out, get it out of your system, and then we're going to dig back in. And to this day, I cringe when I think about it. Right? It was the most embarrassing moment of my professional career I think I think that's like my top it's in the top three for sure Mm -hmm. yeah I you know it's I think that's the only thing that keeps people sane in industries that invoke a lot of uncomfortableness uh you know in in dentistry it's it's just a lot of pain I I hate to say it but going to the dentist is painful it's yeah. emotionally painful for people. It's physically painful. Going to therapy is a humbling experience. And I think as Even the Even for the therapist. <laughs> I mean, right, right. 
Um, and I think you just literally, if you don't have those moments where you're like, guess what happened to me today? I don't know. I don't think you can survive. Yeah. I think it's the only thing. I think the universe knows that you have to have those in order to survive. Uh, totally. And so it's kind of interesting that we're talking about this whole like uh, survival and that kind of theme running with that theme because that really ties into what we're going to be talking about today Ooh, yeah ooh rah rah, ooh, rah, rah. <clears throat> so i will give a disclaimer that one of the parts a big part of this story has to do with suicide so if that's a big trigger for you um I would say skip ahead for like five minutes, but it's literally going to be kind of smack dab in the middle of the story. So I will try to, if I remember, give you guys a little heads up when that's coming. Mm -hmm. Okay. I'm glad I'm always, you know, like I said, I always hate listening to this stuff, but I'm really, I really am glad because I think there's, um, I think there's a lot of awareness that needs to be brought to, especially suicide. I don't, I think that's one of those weird, uh, no one likes to really talk about it. I think it's a different mm -hmm. level of personal. Yeah. And I think we can save a couple, like, you know, three to five minutes at the very end to kind of unpack suicide a little bit. Yeah. Um, and then of course you guys can hang around and listen to that if you want. And then if you don't, you don't have to, right? Yeah. yeah. You can go your own way. Own way. Go your own way. All right. Chelsea, are you ready? I'm ready for it. Are you it. ready for this? Okay. This story starts with one woman. Okay. And it's going to end in a surprising, mysterious twist. Mm -hmm. okay. okay. So Lori Erica Kennedy was okay. born on October 16th, 1968. She grew up as a native of Philadelphia and Pennsylvania for her first 17 years and decided to leave Philly around 1986. By all reports, there were struggles in her childhood, primarily with her mother and her stepfather. But, but was she West Philadelphia born and raised? On the playground is where she spent most of her days. <laughs> chilling out, maxing, relaxing, all cool, and all shoes, all b-ball outside of school. No. When a couple of guys, they were up they to were no good. They started making trouble in the neighborhood. We got a little fight. My mama got scared. She said, you're moving with your auntie and uncle in Bel Air. Did she move to Bel Air? Is that where she's moving? No. Oh, boo. No. But I think you guys would be disappointed if there wasn't at least three musical interludes in the first 12 seconds of the story. <laughs> yeah. Sorry. <laughs> okay, so after she left Philly, Lori bounced here and there until she ultimately wound up in the great state of Texas. Ooh. I was oh, waiting okay. for you to sing it. <laughs> okay. It was there where Lori met her soon-to-be husband, John Blakely Blake Ruff. Blake was an eligible bachelor who had earned his bachelor's degree from UT in Austin. Shout out to our cousins and uncles who are alma maters of UT. Mm -hmm. He earned a bachelor's in telecom management from DeVry 
and he worked in the commercial accounts portion of the communications industry. Okay. Blake was a stable guy who had deep Texan roots and came from a well-to-do family. The Ruff family lived in Longview, Texas, which is a city sandwiched between Dallas and Shreveport, Louisiana. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's, it's east, northeast Texas. Yeah. I'm sorry. When I, inter- when I interrupted you earlier uh, to sing about West Philadelphia and the Fresh Prince, were you, you said that she, her home life was, was not good. a big deal. Oh, it was not good. She did it not wasn't have super good. Okay. Right. And we're going to get into that a lot more towards the okay. end, but just I'm keeping it vague for a reason. Okay. Gotcha. Yeah. Yeah. So the Ruff family, they meddled in the real estate and banking industries and were definitely local celebrities low key, right? Everybody knew who the Ruffs were. Mm-hmm. According to Maureen O'Hagan, and I'm going to do a big shout out to Maureen O'Hagan because I get a lot of my information from the wonderful journalism that she did. Uh, Her article in the Seattle Times, Blake's family was described as a close-knit East Texas family who were warm and friendly people who sent their kids to boarding school and they socialized at their local country club. Mm, Yeah. Yeah. So when I say eligible bachelor... All the things on the checklist were there. Yeah. Yeah. For sure. Right. He's got. And this is the the 80s, right? Yes. This is the 80s. Mm. Oh, I bet he had some big hair. I lifestyle. I literally, I think somewhere in this, I literally wrote, what's that phrase? The higher the hair, the closer to God. Yeah. That phrase. Yeah. Jesus to Jesus. Jesus to Jesus. Yeah. So as I mentioned, Blake grew up in East Texas in an affluent manner with his parents and his twin brother, David. Okay. Mm -hmm. It was reported that Blake really looked up to his older brother and would always find himself paralleling David's life choices and preferences. The roughs were your typical Southern family where I'm sure they appreciated Jesus and good hair. Oh, there it is. And then I said, what's the saying? The higher the hair, the closer to God. Yeah. So when Blake's older brother, David, joined a Bible study class, Blake decided he would, too. It was there at it was there at Northwest Bible Church in Dallas where Blake met Lori Kennedy. Okay. Yeah. And so this is now in 2003 when they met. Okay. So they were they were. How old are they at this point, do you think? I don't know. She was born in 86. So she whatever that math is. She was born in 86 or 68? I'm sorry. She was born in 68. Okay. So okay. I don't know what that math is. Okay. Okay. Lori was described as tall, attractive, smart, and that she loved animals and going out for tea. Ooh. Ooh. However, the one drawback to Lori was that she was known to be very private and very secretive about things in her life, primarily her history. Was her actual name Bailey and she runs a podcast? (laughs) I can't tell you guys how many edits we do because Chelsea will say like, the most common things like oh we have red hair and i'm like we're gonna have to edit that out i don't want anybody to know i have red hair it's like every episode (laughs) no one can know yeah 
So she would share things that were fairly surface level. So people got to know her, knew that she loved Cuban food. She was religious. And that's kind of it. There wasn't a whole lot of depth to Lori. Yeah. So while Blake and Lori were dating throughout their courtship, he would ask Lori things about her life because that's what you do when you're dating somebody. Who are yeah, you? Sure. Where'd you come from? What do you like? What do you not like? That kind of stuff. No, Where she was from. Security number. Right. account number. What's your blood type? What's your blood type? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. But um, typical questions most people ask each other when they're learning more about them. But the answers Blake and his family got never exactly gave them more of an understanding of Lori, right? When asked where she was from, Lori shared that she was from Arizona. Mm -hmm. When asked about her family, well, Lori's parents were dead. But were they dead? Mm-mm. Mm. Okay. Mm-mm. She had absolutely no living relatives to mention when they would ask about it. Hmm. Lori gave dismissive answers or answers that were intended to deflect all of the prying, right? Mm -hmm. Just kind of not really answer the questions or deflect or just straight out lie. Childhood pictures, well, Lori had an answer for that. She burned them because she didn't have a good childhood. Well, what kind of bad childhood, they would ask? Well, she wouldn't say. It just wasn't good. Right. Okay. So vague on top of vague on top of vague. This was the woman that Blake and his family were introduced to. And his parents were not so sure that they were convinced that Lori was a good fit for Blake. I mean, naturally, mm -hmm. they felt like they didn't really know her. Right. Uh, I, yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. That's fair. But Blake, on the other hand, well, he was a rough, but his feathers weren't. <laughs> <laughs> Easy there, killer. Okay. He and Lori continued their courtship and their relationship until they decided to elope in January of 2004. So they hadn't been seeing each other too, too long, and they eloped in January 2004. How do you feel about eloping? Do you like eloping? I kind of want to elope. I am super neutral. I'm Switzerland on that. Like, I, cool if you do, cool if you don't. I don't really care. I think it's kind of romantic. Yeah. I mean, especially if you get matching tats and your officiant is Elvis or something like that. I think it's kind of cool. I kind of like it. Yeah. Good for them. So good for them. So they eloped. No one other than the officiant was in attendance at their wedding. So no family, no friends. It was just Blake and Lori. Right. Okay. True Lori fashion, if you ask me. Right. So afterwards... Blake's mother, Nancy, wanted to do the traditional wedding announcement and publish it in the local newspaper, right? Because that's what oh, Texas yeah. moms do. Oh, yes. Oh. <laughs> yeah. Yes. But Lori said, ner. She was like, uh-uh. <laughs> that's a hard no. That's a hard no that's for a, me, Nancy. That's a hard no. And Nancy was not super happy about that. Mm -mm. So after getting married, Blake and Lori decided to move to Leonard, Texas, which was roughly 125 miles from Longview and near the Oklahoma border. Okay. Okay. If you say so. If you say so. It was far enough away to break away from the family of origin, create their own dynamic, 
but it was close enough to maintain a good relationship with Blake's family. Family. Yeah. Okay. Blake and Lori settled down on two acres and lived peacefully off of a single lane road. Okay. Again, they were close enough to have what you would call neighbors, but far enough away to avoid that that suburban feel. Okay. More country, but still neighbors close enough that you could see. I mean, it's it's I feel like that's super common in Texas. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like yeah, southern sure. states in general. I don't know. I'm like, you can have two acres and be two acres from your next neighbor. Yeah, that's pretty mm-hmm. common. Yeah. There were reports that Blake was very engaging, extroverted, often neighboring it up with his neighbors, right? Mm-hmm. Does anybody want to take a guess on Lori's stance? Yeah. She was getting deeper and deeper into her introversion. Yeah, absolutely. She was a recluse. Yes. So she would walk her property often, but totally avoid engagement with her neighbors. I feel personally attacked thus far in this whole episode. Um, like one point when we lived outside of, whenever we lived in Georgia, uh, I literally lived in one house for like, I don't know, four years and did not speak to my neighbors, not one time. Because yeah. there was no point. Like, what are we going to talk about? I don't know. I mean, ask Blake. He probably knows. Yeah. He has the answer. He's an extrovert. (laughs) Yeah. So Lori made sure to create a life that suited her preferences. She worked from home as a marketing consultant and also ran. I love this so much because it's the most introverted shit. She ran a mystery shopper business from home as well. (laughs) Dude, I mean, go big or go home. You know, be full-blown introverted. That's right. And she was. For the next five years, Lori and Blake lived on their peaceful little piece of land, both doing their things. Okay. Do you remember that song? Lori and Blake sitting in a tree. K-I-S-S-I-N-G. Yes. First comes love. Then comes marriage. Then comes the baby in the baby carriage. That's right. Well... It was reported that Lori really wanted to be a mother. Mm-hmm. I wrote, can I just add how interesting it is when someone has a less than nurturing childhood and how when they grow up, they're either like, hell no, I will not have children. Or they're like, all I want in this life is to be a mom. Have you ever yeah. noticed that? Yeah. And it's like, I don't want to just be a mom. I want to have like four of my own kids and then adopt three other kids and then feed the neighborhood spaghetti in my spare time. Like they want yeah. all the kids, all the they nurturing, want to save, them. save yeah. all the babies from mm-hmm. the perils that they grew up in. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah, and it's interesting. So, unfortunately, as much as Lori wanted a baby, there were she went through some really tough five years. She struggled with infertility and miscarriages. She underwent fertility treatments. And finally, though, at the end of 2007, a little over four years after their marriage, Lori and Blake found out that they were expecting. Mm-hmm. Okay. okay. So fortunately, this pregnancy progressed normally and Lori gave birth to a baby girl in the summer of 2008. Okay. Okay. 
Though this was a happy time for Lori, the birth of her daughter was somewhat of a catalyst to tension between Lori and her in-laws. Oh, yeah. yeah. Yeah, I can see that. I can see that coming. Yeah. Once Lori had her daughter, she became even more protective and you could even say controlling, and especially in regard to the baby. Mm-hmm. Lori would rarely allow anyone over. She would rarely allow anyone to hold the baby. She would be hyper aware, hypersensitive to like the baby putting things in her mouth and that kind of thing. She was just kind of like a helicopter mom, I guess, yeah. but kind of on steroids, right? Yeah. 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 Hyper vigilant. Yeah. According to the same article by Maureen O'Hagan, tensions were building between the Ruff family and Lori. On one hand, she spent hours tracking their genealogy and collecting their family recipes and like really getting into this whole kind of like legacy mentality, right? Yeah. Yeah. But on the other hand, on visits, it wasn't unusual for her to sneak off for long naps and kind of avoid social interactions with with his family. Right. I you know, I really just don't have anything to say about that. Because same girl, same. I, I mean, was I, I really, I really do get it. I, I mean, because if you don't have that introverted tendency, yeah, I mean, it's it's a little overwhelming being around I mean, family. Yeah, the first time that I met Zach's family, like his oh, parents cool. and his cool. sister. I literally, and we joke about it to this day, I literally tell them I was like Ian off of my big fat Greek wedding. When they're like, Ian! And he's just like this only dude and there's like 30 Greek people around him like trying to feed him and oh, it was so overwhelming. And loud and talkative and the best. Can I just say that you really did marry into Mm. the best. Oh, I love your family. I love my family oh, 100%. too. 100%. I'm not, you know, I'm not going to do like, what What about us over here? Y'all, I love them so much. I love your family so much. Mm-hmm. But oh, it is. For sure. It's overwhelming. If you are not that person, it's overwhelming. So Lori, mm-hmm. I, I, you know, I just can't fault her for taking a siesta. Yeah. And it would be things like, you know, if if the women would come over and they were congregating in the kitchen, cooking, chit-chatting, Lori was like, nah, she she wasn't there. She didn't want to deal with it. It was too much for her. Yeah. She, um, in that same article, Blake was reported as saying, maybe she wasn't even comfortable around her own self. How would she be comfortable around the family? I'm assuming something really tragic must have happened, he said, in retrospect, right? So pretty insightful for him to kind of think outside of the box and say, like, hey, maybe it's really her own issues and her own traumas and not that she doesn't like the family. Yeah. Right? Yeah. So as we all know, tension like this in an extended family system does not usually just dissipate on its own, right? Mm -hmm. You don't just wake up one day and everything's better. Mm-mm. It takes courage to have heart to heart and open communication, but as we as we've seen, Lori isn't really going to initiate that. Right? She's not going to really be part of the solution equation. 
Well, it sounds like to me, either she doesn't know how she was never modeled how, mm-hmm. you know, or she just, I don't know, maybe anxiety, maybe something that just, she just physically can't, she's like capable, right? right? Mm-hmm. And so the tension between Blake's family and Lori grew and grew, and it just amplified all of the issues that were there. Mm-hmm. Lori would incessantly complain about Blake's family and fought allowing their daughter to visit visit them. So she would fight with Blake, not physically, but she would yeah. just be like, no, she, you know, the baby doesn't need to go over there. I don't want him over here. And Blake's like between a rock and a hard spot, right? Yeah, that is hard. This went on until Blake reached his breaking point because Lori wasn't changing and it just had become too much for him. So only two years after the baby was born in the summer of 2010, Blake moved out of their home in Leonard and moved back in with his parents filing for divorce soon afterward. Okay. Um, real quick, like, I think we hear this stuff a lot, you know, and people are just like, well, you know, that's what you signed up for. You know, why are you upset that Lori didn't change? But I think that a lot of times most individuals have just that natural hope of like, oh, once she warms up, you know, it's just, she just needs to get to know them. You know, like, I think that's a pretty common thing for you to have this idea that it's like, oh, it'll get a little better, you know? Sure. Come out of her shell a little bit and. And I think that's, isn't that usually what's supposed to happen? If you're in a healthy, thriving mental state, you do kind of, you know, you warm up a little bit. What are your thoughts on that? Oh, yeah, for sure. It's hard to kind of see, like, um, because what I'm hearing when you say that is, where's the difference or the line between it being like a legitimate red flag or it being like a normal progression in a relationship? Correct. Right. And so this is, you guys are probably kind of like, what are we talking about? Like, there's this woman, we're talking about this woman, her husband, but like, what, what does this have to do with anything? And I think if you guys just hang in there, because we're going to get to it right now, and it's going to start unraveling. Everything's going to start unraveling, and you're going to see why I started it the way that I did. Okay? Okay. So over the course of the few months following... Lori being served divorce papers, she became unglued, okay? She likely had some sort of, like, psychotic break by all of the reports that I was reading. She struggled with comprehension, not making sense when she would talk. She would become so hyper-focused on, to, like, how to fix her marriage and super obsessive about things that sometimes were, like, nonsensical or arguably kind of irrelevant to other people right Mm -hmm. which all has the signs of some sort of break okay Mm -hmm. Lori attempted to seek counseling from a pastor at her church but again she just couldn't seem to pull it together all right she began at this point so she's she's spiraling okay she began to harass the rough family 
sending them wild, threatening emails, even once causing a scene at a custody exchange. And she just continued to to go down this rabbit hole that she was that she was going down. Yeah. But because of her aggressive and erratic behaviors, the Ruff family had to send a cease and desist order to Lori because they were so concerned with their safety at that point. Okay. So this is a span of a few months and she's just completely kind of lost touch with reality. Yeah. So this was the cease and desist was probably likely the last straw for Lori, which would come to a head that Christmas, that year on Christmas Eve. Dude, what is it about the holidays so seriously? You know what I mean? Like, it just seems like it's going to build and it's also going to erupt around the holidays. all of your your most uh, primal, that's not the right word. Your deepest cuts in trauma come from your family, right? That's the first cut. The first cut is the deepest, right? And it comes from your family trauma. Everybody has trauma in their family of origin. And so the holidays, you know, the media, society, all of that paints it as this like super happy time. But the reality is, is that people's mental health um really plummets around the holidays and relapses happen the most around the holidays right Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. so it's just i think it's too much for people yeah so again christmas eve of this year and so this is my trigger warning for you guys um for suicide skip about 60 seconds if that's too much for you so on christmas eve that evening Lori drove over to where Blake was staying, which was at his parents' house in Longview, and she parked her black Tahoe in the driveway. At some point that evening, Blake's father made his way outside and noticed the black Tahoe was sitting in his driveway just idling. Okay? Everybody knew that that was going to be Lori, right? And based on recent events, that was probably a little alarming or disconcerting. So, Again, he knew it had to be Lori, so he approached the vehicle with caution. Unfortunately, sitting in the driver's side was the freshly deceased body of Lori Ruff. She had shot herself in the head in the driveway of the the Ruff's house the night before Christmas. When did he, when did he go, when did he find the Tahoe? You that, said freshly. Okay, yeah. you said freshly deceased. Okay, so it it wasn't like it had been sitting there overnight. No, this was probably like minutes or hours at okay. most. Okay, gotcha. Yeah. Christmas Eve. Christmas Eve. Mm-hmm. She was just 42 years old. Oh. Lori left behind, so in the Tahoe with her, she left behind two suicide notes. One for her daughter to be opened on her 18th birthday mm-hmm. and one for her husband, Blake. Okay. So Blake naturally was devastated. I mean, I think it's one of those things that he probably still loved his wife. Absolutely. But there were just a lot of issues that they weren't able to kind of uh, correct or rectify at that time. Correct. 
And so he was left with more questions than answers, right? Uh Lori's funeral was held on January 3rd, 2011 at the First Christian Church in Longview, Texas. And I'm listing this all for a reason. The obituary listed her birthday as July 18th, 1969, and said that she lived in Scottsdale, Arizona, then moved to Dallas, Texas in 1987. Okay. Do you remember what I said her birthday was? Uh, October 16th or something, 1968. When was it? That's exactly right. Yep. October 16th, 1968, oh. but her obituary said July 18th, 1969. Hmm. Where did they get that number? Mm. And so this is just the beginning of this super crazy wild web of mystery surrounding this woman. Hmm. So the days following Lori's suicide... Her estranged husband, her, I guess, now estranged estranged husband, Blake, was left with the awful and painful task of sorting through her belongings and dealing with the details around her death and the funeral. Mm -hmm. One of those days, shortly after her death, Blake had returned to their previously shared home and noticed that the house was just in a total state of disarray. I I don't think that this is surprising. Her mental health really started to plummet. Right. And I I think it's probably understood that it's going to be reflected in her living environment, too. Yeah. Okay. It was a wreck. It hadn't been cleaned. It It was dirty. It was in disarray. It was an insight glance into the struggle that she how she had been living since she had been served those divorce papers since that summer, right? Mm -hmm. While he was cleaning and sorting, Blake stumbled upon a lockbox that was buried deep in Lori's closet. Lori had warned Blake to stay away from it, and it was a lockbox labeled Crafts, but after breaking it open, the truth would soon be revealed. I'm just going to take a really super quick pause. If Zachary had a lockbox <laughs> in his fucking closet, it was just like, don't ever touch this lockbox. <laughs> I am going to, to absolutely 1000% open that some bitch and be like, what is in this do not touch lock box in your fucking closet yeah no that lock box would become in my mind public enemy number one like oh anything like wanted dead or alive i'm like not around here partner not around here ain't got no (laughs) secrets right here worry about the big end of that lock box okay and and maybe it's just like my like my sex addiction therapist in me like my first thought would be like you have I'm not even going to say what my brain says because it would be like I would go on America's top 10 wanted list um but I would think that you have the grossest nastiest most shitty 
stuff in there, okay? okay? And I cannot live with that in my closet. To be fair, if I told Lucas not to touch my Oh, he wouldn't box, touch it. He would never would, touch it. We would be like, what lockbox? He'd be like, like there's been a lockbox there for 84 years. Oh, I just he, thought that was just like, you know, move it. I thought that was Christmas decorations. He would, he would too, he would never know. He would, ne- and, and then I'd be like, first of all, there's a lockbox. Second of all, don't touch it. And he'd don't be like. Don't touch my lockbox. Don't, don't touch it. And he'd be like, um, have you seen the ketchup? And I'm like. Oh, yeah. Yeah. So get this. Among the items found in this lockbox were multiple different state IDs with different names. Oh. Along with these ID cards, one of the first things Blake pulled out of the box was a court document from 1988 showing that Lori Erica Kennedy was really Becky Sue Turner. Oh. Blake was shocked, obviously, to see that his wife wasn't who she says he was. And so this obviously started this, like, burning desire to find out this mystery of what's going on, right? Mm -hmm. So Mm -hmm. luckily for Blake, being the rough and being super well-connected, he had a buddy who was a PI, private investigator. So he asked his buddy to look into this Becky Sue Turner character, okay? Becky Sue, Becky Sue, Becky, 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 Becky Sue, oh, Becky my Becky Sue. <laughs> kind of like Peggy Sue. Shout out to Buddy Holly. Love it. Yeah. Well, no. yeah. Okay. The big LBK. So when this PI started looking into it, what he found, he found a headline from an article in 1971 that read, quote, three children perish in fire at Fife. Apparently, Becky Sue Turner was a two-year-old girl who died in a house fire along with her two sisters on December 1971, and she was buried alongside her sisters in Woodbine Cemetery in Puyallup, Washington. Washington State. Washington State. Uh Uh-huh. So clearly, Lori... Ruff was not Becky Sue Turner. Becky Sue Turner was dead and had been for nearly 40 years. So I wasted that whole song on something. <laughs> no, it was great. Oh, she was worthy of it. This is a movie. This is a movie. I've seen this movie. I haven't Maybe. really seen it, but I'm like, this is a movie. Yeah. So according to Stephanie Weber's article in Marie Claire, this now indicated that the woman once known as Lori Ruff would now have to be registered in the federal government's database of missing and unidentified persons as a Jane Doe, right? Because now they weren't yeah. sure of what her, who her, what her identity was. Loved ones, reporters, and federal investigators would all fall into this story to begin a search of Lori's true identity, a process that would take six years to complete. So 
Though Blake had found some clues regarding Lori's past in that lockbox, it was like chasing a white rabbit in Alice in Wonderland. It just getting it just kept getting more and more confusing and convoluted. The more they dug, the more confusing it got. According to Brett Berke's article in in Cron, Joe Velling was an investigator for the Social Security Administration, and he took on the case. Okay. He eventually linked up with a nuclear physicist. So this is the coolest, most hashtag boss woman. Nuclear physicist turned forensic genealogist in oh. California. And her name is Colleen Fitzpatrick. Oh. So apparently Joe was assigned to this case in 2011. And after a congressman's aide gave him a binder filled with information from the lockbox... So this congressman's aide was like, hey, you work for the Social Security Administration. Can you check into this? I imagine that the roughs maybe were connected somehow. Right. Yeah. Uh, like, sure. Well connected, I mean, like networked. Right. And so this binder almost literally falls into Joe Belling's lap. Right. And the, the binder was all of the stuff that Blake found in the lockbox, right? Mm -hmm. All the IDs and the... Yes. Um, what that else? That court document. It was oh, a court, court document. document. Yeah, 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 yeah. Court document. And so this, all of this paperwork was actually put together by Blake and his family. Okay. Right? So they yes. are the ones really pursuing this and, and wanting to get some answers. Investigator Velling began this rabbit hole chase with some heightened confidence as he had dealt with many conmen and identity theft cases in his profession. That's all he did. And he was like, there were a couple articles where he was like, ah, it's fine. I'll figure it out in like six weeks. Right. And it turned How into six hard? years. Like, I feel like, I feel like that. I feel like Joe is me. How hard can it be? How hard can How it be? How hard can it be? It's For not sure. Like, I, give me, give me a weekend. Maybe. Right. And so by year two, mm -hmm. Joe was just like, oh my gosh, he just kept hitting dead ends. He was having a hard time nailing down the identity of Lori. He knew one thing for sure, though, and that he said in a lot of his, his interviews is that she was super intelligent and she knew exactly what she was doing. Remember how I told you that the Ruff family found that legal document in her lockbox for Becky Sue Turner, right? Right. Yeah. Well, it turns out that the real Becky Sue had a birth certificate from one state and a death certificate in another. Okay. So the, the but, little two-year-old was born yeah. in one state. She died in another. Right. Okay. Meaning Lori chose this identity carefully knowing it would be more difficult for it to be traced since there were two different states involved in the birth and death process, especially in the 60s and 70s. She knew that. But, but, why, but why? Okay. But why? Tell us, Bailey. Tell us why. So this is the first known identity theft incident known at this time committed by Lori. Mm hmm Using this new name of Becky Sue, Lori then went to Idaho and obtained an ID in Boise, claiming that she was 18 years old. And I think she was actually 17. Like, there's a lot of kind of, like, 
17, 18. Like there's always a kind of a year difference. Yeah. Yeah. After that, her movements were tracked from Boise, Idaho to Dallas, Texas, where this kind of Jane Doe now obtained her identity of Lori Erica Kennedy, which is what we started the story with. Right. And my question is, how did a 17, 18-year-old girl know how to do this? That's ex- okay. Get out of my head. Cause I'm like, I mean, when I was 17, I was like, where is the nearest Popeyes? Like, that's what I thought about. Like, right. I can barely navigate a new, a new city, uh, a city I've lived in for four years without my GPS, like, let alone figure out how to get a whole new identity. Like, and, and this was like you have to think about this like this was physically visiting facilities you know what i mean like this was not typing in and applying for stuff online right like it is now like this is like you have a drive you have a mission and you yeah mm-hmm. like it, it's a whole thing that's a whole thing so Regardless, this did at least give a clue that Lori was at least known to have been in Idaho in 1988. Velling was also able to identify a P.O. box Lori had in Boulder City, Nevada. Okay. Which she then forwarded her mail to Dallas. So, okay. We started in Philadelphia. There's an identity from a two-year-old who died in Washington State. She was in Boise. She was in Dallas. She had a P.O. box in Nevada. Okay, so this is all over the map, quite literally. Right? So this woman um, was all over the place. So again, speaking to the savvy and masterfully manipulative nature of Lori, she was even able to get into college without any records or high school transcripts. This is blowing my mind. So, again, a different article from Maureen O'Hagan. Velling also quickly found out that Lori had graduated from the University of Texas in Arlington with a degree in business. From there, he was able to track down a few friends and colleagues around the time frame that she was there. One peer that he got in touch with had said that Lori had been working as a dancer at a gentleman's club, right, in the early 90s, but no one that Belling spoke to knew literally anything about Lori before 1988, okay? Velling was able to learn that Lori had breast implants, and so he was like, oh, hey, that's a lead cereal. I can go with because yeah, they have serial numbers. numbers. Yeah, But that was another dead end. Lori got those after she had already identified herself as Lori. Mm. So that yielded zero results. So Velling continued to search. Going off of papers from Lori's lockbox, he attempted to find previous employers. They were bogus. He contacted an, uh, an attorney in Los Angeles because there was a name of an attorney in Los Angeles When he called, there was no record or recollection of any services with Lori Kennedy or Lori Ruff. Hmm. 
He ran her pictures through all the facial recognition databases. Nothing. He ran her fingerprints in Homeland Security's database. Nothing. She truly was like a whole new person each time he turned the corner. And no one was getting any closer to finding out who she was. Like they just could not figure it out. All the people knew, all the people knew who were involved in this case was the unknown woman stole the identity of a deceased child, Becky Sue Turner, changed her name to Lori Erica Kennedy. We are two identities into this woman, but so far, so far, no real leads to her origins or her true identity. Isn't okay. this crazy? This is crazy. This is because all of my questions, I'm like, well, just look at her work history. Go talk to her old bosses. Like, it's all bogus. Cause, and I, I, like I said, I am Joe, where I'm like, oh my gosh, just talk to her old bosses. It's not a big deal. Like, they'll, like, this is crazy. Mm hmm. So in 2013, investigator Velling, along with the support of the Ruff family, they decided to turn to a reporter he knew at the Seattle Times in hopes that crowdsourcing would provide an answer to the many questions surrounding Lori Ruff. Okay. okay. He figured that if the story was published, that there would surely be someone out there who would recognize her and provide some answers because he just kept hitting dead ends. So this was like his Hail Mary, right? Yeah. He didn't yeah. know what else to do. The case of this mystery woman started as an ember that slowly took the internet sleuth's world by fire. I mean, can you imagine? Well, yeah. So over the years following Lori's death, armchair investigators tried to unravel this mess and find answers to such a nag nagging mystery. The theories got wilder and wilder while not exactly finding any solid evidence to turn to. There were questions of whether she was a runaway. Maybe she was a runaway from a weird polygamous cult. Maybe she was in hiding from an abusive ex-partner. She changed her identity to run from the law because she was a stone-cold criminal. Like, they were just going all over yeah. the place. They had no idea because why would somebody hide your trail that hard, right? Yeah. Yeah. So these theories eventually led to Lori's death being marked a hit rather than a suicide. Right? Because they're like... You know, the mafia got into it and all this crazy, 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 crazy stuff. So at the very least, the 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 publications in this these articles gained some interest, at least in the web sleuth world, and it added momentum to the case that wasn't really there before, right? Mm -hmm. Right. So by 2016, there were investigations from many angles. Joe Velling was attacking the mystery from a more follow-the-document breadcrumbs, if you will. Mm -hmm. Internet sleuths were doing their thing. But Colleen Fitzpatrick, the forensic genealogist, was going about this from a totally different angle. Mm -hmm. DNA. Right. As reported, again, in Maureen O'Hagan's article, Colleen had helped Holocaust survivors search for family members and adoptees find birth parents. So she's mm -hmm. just doing, she's doing really great work. 
She helped estate lawyers track down heirs. And in one national news case, she was able to find the identity of a child who died on the Titanic in 1912 by tracing his ancestry through his relative's DNA. That's crazy. Isn't that wild? So this woman is a badass and has some pretty advanced scientific approaches. She knew that Blake and Lori shared a daughter, which meant that the daughter would share Lori's DNA. Yes. If Colleen were able to obtain their daughter's DNA, she could essentially subtract Blake's DNA from it, leaving it with essentially Lori's DNA. Right. Right. And when Colleen was able to analyze the daughter's DNA, there was a match indicating a distant relative to Lori, and his name was Michael Cassidy. So she did all of that, and she found a match to Lori's, I guess, subtracted DNA, if you will. Right. Yeah. But there were hundreds of people with this name in the U.S., and when they reached out to this person through the genealogy website, there was no response. Okay. So again, the trail runs cold. Years and years pass before anything happens again in the case and finding out who Lori really was. After many years of waiting, another relative pops up on this Lori Ruff mystery. With this new lead, Fitzpatrick started working diligently to recreate Lori's family tree, basing it off of this cousin's ancestry. Okay. This lead zeroed in on an all too fil- all too familiar name, Michael Cassidy. Okay. This time with more accurate DNA ancestry and a family tree created, Fitzpatrick was able to hone in on the correct Michael Cassidy. Okay. This Michael Cassidy was an extended family member from the Philadelphia area. Does that oh. sound familiar? Okay. Yes. Yeah. So using obituaries, public records, and other modern tools to help people reconnect with lost relatives, Colleen was able to put together a link that likely pointed to Lori's mother being Michael Cassidy's aunt. Right. Yeah. Okay. Now, at this point in the investigation, there were two potential families on opposite sides of the same coin. One family in Texas who lost their loved one the person that they knew as Lori Erica Ruff, and now a family in Pennsylvania who had lost their loved one years before in 1986 when she left. Okay. So finally, in March of 2016, Joe Velling, who is now retired at this point, he hopped on a plane and headed to Philly to meet the newly identified family members to this unknown woman. Velling arrived to the house of one of the members of the Cassidy family to see if they had any information about Lori. He began this introduction by trying to, like, really professionally and concisely tell them, like, why he's there. Right. But also knowing that he would have to deliver the news of her death, right? Right, right. And so having no other information than this woman's picture, he hoped that that would be enough. He couldn't really present this unknown woman by name because, again, nobody really knew who she was. Right. 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 I mean, they don't officially have, like, a real name for her. Right. At this point no. Still. 
So after failing to make these connections in a convoluted story verbally, Joe finally gets out Lori's most recent driver's license picture, and it was taken when she was around 40. He pulls it out, lays it on the table, shows it to this woman, and that's when it clicked. The woman said, my God, that's Kimberly. Okay. And Velling was quoted as saying at that moment, the hair on the back of my neck stood up when I realized she knew who this person was. This is six years of Lori being known as Becky and Jane Doe. And now, who the hell is Kimberly? I'm just like, who's Kimberly? <laughs> so after six years of mystery and dead ends and countless investigative hours, Lori Erica Ruff's identity had finally been found. She was not Becky Sue Turner, Lori Erica Kennedy, or Lori Erica Ruff, as all the different documents and ID cards suggested. She was Kimberly McLean, who had left her Philadelphia home when she was 18 and never went back. Okay. Okay. <laughs> Are you getting pissed at this point? I, I mean, no. I just, I'm trying to rationalize a thought process of like, why are you going through all of this trouble? Like, just be Kimberly McLean. Like, yeah. just move away. Tell your family they're a bunch of a-holes. And move on and with your life. Wash your hands. Yeah. Wash your hands. So once Joe had a name, Kimberly McLean, he began trying to answer the many questions Kimberly's family had about what happened to their beloved cousin, niece, daughter, since she disappeared nearly 30 years ago. They had no idea what happened to her. So the following day, Velling was able to speak with Michael Cassidy's aunt, Deanne, who was, in fact, Kimberly's mother. Okay, so what? this is, so this is the mama. This is oh, Lori, Kimberly, her mama, Deanne. Okay? okay. And as a side note, DNA confirmed that. So there's no kind of okay. mystery that this was her biological mother. Right. Okay. So while sitting with investigator Velling, it was here where Deanne unfortunately learned about the death of her daughter, along with the fragmented pieces of information that Velling was telling them about Kimberly since she left. Okay. Right. So this family's like, what the hell? Right. Right. So upon learning of her daughter's death, Deanne was gutted. She had not seen nor spoken to Kimberly in 30 years. So Deanne, who is now 80 years old, was forced to deal with the loss of her daughter again, but in a totally different painful way. Yeah. <laughs> Soon after finally connecting to Kimberly's family, the missing pieces to this mystery kind of started to fall into place. And this is where maybe it's even more fascinating or maybe not as interesting. But the reality of this mystery proved to be even more bewildering than the conspiracy theories conjured up by the media and Internet sleuths. Okay. Okay. To gather the missing pieces about Kimberly prior to 17 years old, 
Deanne and her brother, Tom Cassidy, provided some background about Kimberly and her life growing up. So as a little girl, she lived with her mother, Deanna, who was a housewife, her father, James McLean. He was a carpenter and sometimes a volunteer firefighter. And she had a sister, Michelle. They all lived in the suburbs of Philadelphia and had a pretty normal middle-class life. There were reports that the family took vacations, family day trips, ate dinner together at the dinner table every night, that type of thing. Super normal, super functional from what it sounds like. Okay. I think where the the kind of twist comes in is potentially the catalyst, if you will. When Kimberly was a teenager, her mother and father got divorced. Mm-hmm. According, again, to Maureen O'Hagan's article, Kimberly's mother remarried a man named Robert Becker, and this new patriarch moved the family to Wincote, Pennsylvania. Uh, she attended Bishop McDevitt High School, and she this is when things started to change. She began rebelling uh, when they moved to this new school. And it was likely too much for Kimberly having this, like, new father figure guiding the house, right? New home, Mm -hmm. new dad, new school, new town. Yeah. Right? It was reported that Kimberly just didn't adjust well. So by the time she was 18 in 1986, she moved about 30 minutes from Wincote, PA, to King of Prussia, Pennsylvania. And one day, shortly after that, Kimberly decided she was leaving for good and told her mother to not come after her or to search for her. When she left in 1986, it was the last time her family would ever see or hear from Kimberly again. She just left. Okay. Between the time she left in Pennsylvania in 1986 and began her new life as Becky Sue Turner in 1988, so there's these two years that's kind of unaccounted for because there's nobody around to verify anything for those two years. All we know is that Kimberly's father passed away in the middle of all of that. Okay. Her biological father. Okay. So we don't know if she knew that her father passed or not. Okay. Um, but at this point, it wasn't long after his death where she went on to begin her long career as an identity thief leaving behind any traces of her former life as Kimberly McLean. By May of 1988, Kimberly was in Bakersfield, California, and it was there where she obtained a copy of the Becky Sue Turner's birth certificate, as we've mentioned before. By June of that year, she was in Idaho living as Becky Sue Turner, and by June of 1988, excuse me, 1988, Becky Sue was no longer and Lori Erica Kennedy was created in Dallas. And from there, we know the rest of that confusing, tragic story because we've talked about it. Okay. The reason why this, why this wild goose chase of a story is so bewildering, I think, is because the truth is stranger than fiction. There have been no family reports of any evidence in any way, shape, or form that insinuates Kimberly went on to steal and change identities for any nefarious reason. There's there's no evidence that she had an abusive ex-boyfriend, that she was running from, you know, the law. There, there was nothing indicating that. There was no criminal connections. There were no records of other form of fraud or for financial gain 
There wasn't even changing all this to get money. There were just no reports of anything out of the ordinary with Kimberly's life. Lots of people come from divorced households. Lots of people grow up with step-parents they don't like. Lots of people are forced to move as children or teenagers and follow their parents' jobs or family. But Kimberly, she left everyone she ever knew, severed every and all ties to everyone she knew, and literally spent the rest of her life hiding behind an impenetrable veil of secrecy for what reason? What on earth in her life made her brain click with this idea to literally become untraceable and, and to just walk away from everything you've ever known? That, I mean, honestly, I, I'm just sitting here thinking like, I bet you that there are psychotherapists, I, I don't know, I don't even know what your job title would be that are just like, I would love to have done a deep dive with this girl. Mm -hmm. Like, or do brain scans or something. Like, what is going on? Like, the, the, like it's kind of, what is that? There's a saying that says, like, the punishment doesn't fit the crime, right? Where you're like, that was way too extreme of a punishment, you know, for what happened. I feel like it's kind of in that same vein of, like, this is way this is not logical. Like, this is way too extreme of a behavior of becoming a ghost, essentially, for for what? Because mm -hmm. you're, your stepdad's kind of, you know, Professor Dickweed? I don't know. Yeah. Yeah. And both families on kind of opposite sides of the U.S., Pennsylvania, Texas, so they get this news that's like, Okay, she came from like a, a pretty normal middle class family and there's literally no indication of why she did all of this stuff, right? Like she was a chameleon for, like you said, for what reason? Like what reason there were no predators for for an adaptation to assimilate to your surroundings, right? Right, right. And so, I mean, that's what these families are grappling with they're just like we have no idea we don't know we don't know what's going on and and I think the unfortunate thing is is that these families now even though they have their answers it doesn't there's answer no any question no yeah, there's no closure. so they they live every day wondering why why did she do this what was going on in her brain what was going on in her life for her to be running so hard and so fast from and, you know, like there are some silver linings that the families kind of bring up. The silver lining is that Lori's daughter, Lori and Blake's daughter now, she has an extra set of grandparents, right? Yeah. So like, that's cool. And they have a, a grandbaby that they never knew existed. Yeah. And officially, I also think it's important to say is that um, Lori Ruff was also officially removed from the federal database of missing and unidentified persons once her true identity was found, right? Yeah. So, like, that's a little bit of a win or a big win. And I think cases like this make you question, like, from my perspective, it makes you question if you really know someone. And 
like their level of capability of being able to hide things and to become who they think you want them to be or something of that nature, right? Yeah. And so that's what it appears to be in this case. There's no other indications of why she did what she did. And that is the wild case of Lori Erica Ruff, a.k.a. Lori Erica Kennedy, a.k.a. Becky Sue Turner, a.k.a. Kimberly Maria McLean. Well, and I feel like, like that really is, that's kind of, I don't know, that might be unlocking my unknown lockbox of fear now where I'm like, because it's so counterintuitive. Because if somebody It doesn't make any sense. Well, and if somebody tells me that they're from Arizona and their favorite movie is Gone Mm -hmm. with the Wind, I'm like, yeah, cool. Like- I would take that at face value all day long. I would take pretty much whatever anybody said. If somebody was like, yeah, I, I'm i married and I have three kids, I'd be like, cool, she's married, she has three kids. Like, no, nothing in me would question that. Ever. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And so <laughs> now I'm like... You know, it's kind of like that ludicrous song. It's like, what you got in that room? What about diamonds and gold? Is that what you keep in your mouth? It's like, what are you doing? <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, yeah, what totally. is going on in there? Yeah. And, and I think that, you know, to, again, touch just to maybe tie a bow on the concept that we talked about, at least in this episode of, of Suicide, I think that like some people are more predisposed to being suicidal, right? Like I've I've had clients that come from super normal, super typical, you know, leave it to beaver households and their first suicide attempt was when they were eight years old, right? I've had clients who have literally been kidnapped, raped and tortured and they don't struggle a day with depression maybe some anxiety and PTSD, but not depression, right? So I think yeah. it I think that there are obviously genetic components to that. But with that being said, running from your identity your whole life, humans need identity, whatever that is. Yeah. Yes. And when you deny your identity, whatever that is, and you run from it and you hide it and you shape shift it. I think it creates such a detached sense of self. And well, and I, I have to say, not only that, maybe, maybe she had an end goal in mind, meaning she wanted to be Lori and she wanted to be married and she wanted, you know what I mean? Like she, that was maybe her big picture end goal. Yeah. She got it. She had it. She had the baby. You know what I mean? And then it was all of a sudden like ripped Ripped away away from her. Yeah. And obviously I don't think it's ever fair to be like that's probably what happened. Because I don't think think that's ever fair to assess a situation. But again, it looks to me if she was longing for identity, 
she finally had it, even though it had been created, but she finally had it. And she was no longer in control of keeping that identity. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. And and I think just as a, a needed statement, if you're struggling with depression or self-harm or suicidality, please reach out. Um, you know, there are lots of people out there who want to walk that path with you. You are not a burden. You're worthy. You're loved. You're valuable. And I'm also going to link some just mental health suicide prevention links in the show notes just so you have it, just so you have it in your hand. Yes. And I don't know, kind of one more, like just a little thought, kind of thinking of it, it almost in a weird way, it's not surprising that she would go to a drastic measure like suicide. Um, and again, I'm trying to be very, very sensitive with that. But just from her history, it seems like she makes quite drastic decisions. Does that make sense? Like she, oh, she like go big or go There's home. no way out, right? She's a very, there's no way out. This is my only option. Right. Right. Like I have to move. I have to change my name. You know what I mean? Like it just seems like there's almost avant-garde. I don't know what word to use, but I mean, yeah. that's very extreme. And maybe it's not, I, I'm, I, I'm not by any means a professional. That just seems very extreme behavior from mm -hmm. the running away, changing names, picking a name that died in one state. And you know what I mean? To suicide. I just feel like those are very extreme decisions. It would be without, without arguably substantial catalysts to that. Correct. Right. Correct. So like the, it doesn't, it doesn't feel like it matches Right. Correct. And I think that's why it's so, like you said, bewildering. Like it just doesn't, it just doesn't make sense. So I am going to back what you said on, you know, if you are suicidal, if you're depressed, there's also, there's help for that. I also want to say there is help if you feel like you need to make some big, dare I say, irrational decisions. There are therapists that you can talk to that you're like, hey, I want to move and change my name and take on aliases. Mm -hmm. I mean, you can go and talk to somebody to say, mm -hmm. like, let's think, let's talk this through. Like, you're not alone. You're not alone in whatever And if you can't in. wait for a therapist, call the suicide hotline and yeah. talk to somebody immediately right yeah. you don't have to wait for a therapist if you don't have a friend to talk to and it's three o'clock in the morning um again i'm going to list the the national suicide hotline number in there and you will have access to that immediately whenever you need it perfect i love it so well yeah. thank you for covering a suicide case like i said I, I know that they're always very touchy i think it's important for us to cover them because i think that mental health and suicide awareness is a big it's a big deal mm -hmm. and it's, it's continued yeah. being a big deal in our society well thanks for sitting through it with me and thanks to our listeners for sitting through it because it's not it's not fun right it's it's a heavy it's a heavy thing so appreciate as always we appreciate you guys for hanging out with us and sticking with us through this wild ride 
Yeah, and we'll catch you on the flip side. Bye, guys. Hey, Wildside Tribe, don't forget to follow us on Instagram and Facebook at Wildside Podcast. Make sure to tune in on Wildside Wednesdays. New episodes will drop each Wednesday at 6 a.m. Eastern Standard Time. We would love to hear from you. So if you have a wild case recommendation, email us at wildsidepodcast at gmail.com. That's wildside with a C. Or share your thoughts in the comments below. As always, if you haven't heard it today, you're loved, you're worthy, and you're valuable. And we'll catch you on the, the flip, flip side. side.